1844. Uh, the, the first official telegram was sent from Washington, D.C. Uh, to Baltimore, just a, a distance of about 40 miles. Uh, but uh, this, this simple message that was sent started the telecommunications revolution. Uh, Samuel Morse uh, had been working on this technology for uh, a couple of decades prior to the message being sent, and he had to literally lay wire uh, from along that 40 miles from Baltimore to Washington, D.C. to be able to send that message. Uh, and uh, he understood how significant his invention was. And in fact, the, the first message that was sent was, What hath God wrought? Uh, what has God brought about uh, in this uh, invention through Samuel Morse? And, and previously, no message could travel faster than, than any one individual, either on a horse or on a train, which at that point in time was you know, a train 35 miles an hour and a, and a horse maybe 40 miles an hour. That is as fast as news could travel, which is pretty amazing to think about uh, nowadays. Uh, and, and suddenly, people from... Maine could speak to people in Texas. Those were the the limits of the United States at that point in time. Uh, So you you could speak to one another. uh, And just a few years later, 1866, uh, there was an enormous uh, telegraph line laid across the Atlantic so that Europe could speak to uh, the United States. So what would take uh, previously weeks uh, or months to get news from one place to another could now be done uh, just in a matter of seconds. Now, even before there was the telegraph, there was a, a mode of communication, uh, a medium of communication that uh, could travel an infinite distance and be heard immediately. And do you know what that was? Prayer. Uh, see, prayer is uh, just our speaking to God. Uh, prayer is, is crying out to our Creator. It's dialoguing with the, with the divine. Uh, Pastor Philip Brooks said that, that, that prayer is a true wish sent Godward. Uh, and that is uh, the very essence of, of prayer. You could say that prayer is the greatest form of communication because there was no one greater for us to communicate with. Uh, there's nobody uh, that we w- should be uh, having more joy in speaking to than God our Father uh, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, if prayer is the, the greatest form of communication, and it's a communication uh, that we know we all we all should be praying more, right? Again, I've, as we spoke about this a couple of weeks ago at the beginning of Colossians 4, uh, if we were to evaluate ourselves, it would always be, I could be praying more. No matter how much we pray, we're, we're not prayed up. We have not prayed enough. Uh, and in this letter to the Colossians, prayer takes on a, a significant theme. Uh, if, you, if you turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, beginning of verse 9. Uh, Paul says, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. See, Paul is is praying for the Colossians. And what is he praying for? He's praying for them to grow spiritually. He wants them to be strengthened in their their understanding of God's will. Uh, That is his desire for them. If you uh, turn over to the end of that chapter, uh, in verse 28, uh, you see what Paul's goal was, of what his, his personal ministry uh, mission statement was. That He says, Him we proclaim, speaking of Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And then verse 29, For this I toil, struggling, literally agonizing with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. So he, this is, Paul's explaining his goal to present everyone perfect and mature in Christ. Uh, but he's, he's writing and speaking to the Colossians. He's never even met the Colossians. He, he's never been there. Uh, which leads right into to chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So Paul's saying, even though I'm not there with you, I'm struggling on your behalf. And how do you struggle on someone's behalf who, who you're not there with? Well, you do that through prayer. Now, that's what Paul is saying. Of it. He's been struggling. He's been uh, agonizing in prayer for the Colossians and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen his face. Uh, and it uh, it continues. This is, this is the Apostle Paul's personal prayer life. And then in chapter 4, verse 2, he encourages the Colossian church to continue steadfastly in prayer. It says, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. And so as we as we come to this portion of Colossians 4, the, kind of the, the close of the letter, where Paul is going to be introducing us to uh, individuals who are there with him in Rome, or those whom he uh, sent to carry the letter. We, we met those two men in chapter 4, verses 7 through 9, Tychicus and Onesimus. Those were the two letter carriers. And then last week we looked at... Uh, the first of six companions that he's going to name in verses 10 through 14. And the first three are uh, all Jewish. Uh, Aristarchus, Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, and then Jesus, who is called Justice. So those three men, and we looked at last week of how he said, these three men, they have been an encouragement to me. They have been a comfort to me while he was in prison. Uh, and then uh, the, over the next two verses, he's going to just speak of one man, Epaphras. Uh, and so we always have to make note, if he's going to talk about six people in five verses, but then he spends two whole verses talking about one of them, he's kind of making an emphasis, right? Uh, we, we, we normally emphasize things in our, in our everyday conversation by talking about them a lot. You can tell what people are passionate about by what they're, they can't wait to talk about. And, and Paul seems to, to slow down and explain more about who Epaphras was and what he has been doing on behalf of the Colossians. And we're, we're going to look at just at Epaphras today, and then we're going to look at Luke and uh, Demas next week. But uh, what's amazing is the emphasis that Paul places upon Epaphras, this, this prayer warrior, as we will see. Let, let's read those verses together, uh, ten, or 12 and 13. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. So Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Uh, and so uh, Epaphras is an example of what it looks like uh, to be steadfast in prayer. Paul, Paul commands it in uh, chapter 4, verse 2, and then he's going to give give us an example or, or commend Epaphras, who is one of the Colossians, as a man of prayer, of what this looks like to be devoted to uh, interceding for others uh, before God. Uh, and that's what we'll see today. What does it look like to be a true prayer warrior? What does it truly look like to be uh, devoted to prayer? So this morning, what I want to look at and what you'll be able to follow along there on your outline is, is who is Epaphras? Who is this guy? Uh, how did he pray? And then how can we grow in prayer? Because that, that's, a, that's a natural conclusion that we need to ask, that we need to, to come to. And when, when we read uh, and see others who are praying in the Bible, uh, we should be a little bit humbled. I know every time I read uh, a prayer in Scripture, uh, I'm humbled because oftentimes I don't, my prayers don't sound like the biblical authors. Uh, they, they don't pray the way that they do, but I, but I want to learn. I want to learn to pray as the Apostle Paul prayed. I want to learn uh, to pray as David prayed, as we as we read in Psalm 86. Uh, we we want to begin to pray as they prayed, and for our hearts to resonate with the Word of God and echo back to God who He is and what He's done, just resounding back His own Word to Him. Uh, so I want to look at prayer today, but before we before we dive in, uh, I want to I want to what we're going to be speaking about today is a spiritual discipline. Okay, prayer along with uh, reading the Bible, uh, giving, serving others, uh, fasting, all of these are, are spiritual disciplines. Uh, and they are disciplines that do not make us Christians. Okay, we, we have to understand that. They are things that Christians do, but in and of themselves, they don't make us Christians and they don't make us right with God. Because all of these spiritual disciplines of reading the word, memorizing it, meditating on it, uh, giving to the poor, praying, all of these things the Pharisees did. 
Right? Think about that. They had all of these spiritual disciplines down, but what was Jesus' evaluation of the Pharisees? They were whitewashed tombs. Uh, they, they, they had dead, dead people inside them. They weren't spiritually alive. So these are, this is a spiritual discipline that we need to, to do, but it's something that we do in response to what God has already done for us. Uh, we don't try and earn our salvation by praying. Uh, it's something that we do in response to the salvation that God has already given us through faith in His Son. So, so we need to, to hold that intention of, yes, we're going to be talking about prayer and how it needs to be a part of our lives, but in and of itself, prayer doesn't save us. Faith in Christ, uh, faith in His perfect life, faith in His atoning death on the cross, faith in His, in His resurrection, as we sang uh, just a few moments ago, that is what saves us, faith in Christ. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And prayer is then a response to God and what He has already done on our behalf. So we have to, to keep that in mind. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So let's let's now begin to look first at who is Epaphras? Who is this man uh, that Paul is commending to to the Colossians? And uh, number one, Epaphras is a Colossian church planter. It's likely that Epaphras met Paul uh, when Paul was in Ephesus for a little over two years training and teaching people. Uh, Ephesus was the biggest city on Asia Minor, or what is modern-day Turkey. Uh, you can uh, see uh, Paul's ministry there in Acts chapter 19, uh, verses 8 through 10. It says that, and he, speaking of Paul, entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, re- reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And so you think of all of the residents of Asia hear, uh, hear the word of the Lord, but it's not because Paul's traveling around. It's because people are coming to Paul, learning from him, and then they are scattering and starting churches uh, in, along Asia Minor. And uh, this man, Epaphras, would have been one of those uh, who came to Paul, learned from him, and then went and planted churches uh, in uh, his hometown, probably. So uh, he's, he started the, Colors- the church in Colossae. Uh, easy for me to say. Uh, and then he also started probably the two other churches in the cities that are mentioned here, of Laodicea and Hierapolis. And these, these towns were about... Uh, 10 to 12 miles apart from Colossae. So, and they're a part of what's known as the Lycus Valley, which is probably very similar to the, the Treasure Valley here. We have, what, three major cities here in the Treasure Valley, about 10 miles apart. So you think of about this area, uh, and uh, this man, Epaphras, started churches in these three cities, and he's probably shepherding all of them uh, and, and training and developing people along the way. And, and so now... We are first introduced to Epaphras in Colossians chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. Just prior to what we, what we read, the, uh, where Paul says, Just as you learned it, speaking of the gospel, from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And that's when Paul says in verse 9, From the day we heard, well, Paul, Paul's never been to Colossae. He hears this news of how they're doing from Epaphras. Uh, now, what prompted Epaphras to go from Asia Minor, uh, modern-day Turkey to modern-day Italy in Rome. About a thousand-mile journey. Would have been pretty treacherous. What prompted him to go all of that way to speak to the apostle? Well, uh, in throughout this letter, as we, as we addressed, uh, as it came up, there was false teaching that was beginning to rise up in the church. Uh, and Epaphras, being the, the church planter who started these churches, he's going to be very concerned. And he's concerned enough to the point of he's going to go and travel a thousand miles to speak to the Apostle Paul to get counsel and to ask for help. Say, hey, what do I do? These ideas are beginning to be taught in the church and I need to know how to combat them. Uh, and that's what, that's what he does. So he travels all the way to, to Rome to speak, uh, to Paul. Uh, and so that's how we are introduced to him first and foremost. He is a Colossian church planter. And then also note, notice what, uh, what the Apostle Paul says of him. This is, he, he says something he doesn't say of very many people. He says that he is a servant of Christ. And that word for servant is, is more literally uh, a bondservant or, or a slave. If he's saying Epaphras is a, a slave of Christ, someone who has dedicated his life to serving Jesus. Uh, and by using this word, Paul is, is commending Epaphras because uh, the only other people that Paul has used this word to describe are himself and Timothy. 
And he doesn't use this word to describe anybody else. He says all Christians are bond servants of Christ, but in saying, hey, this is, this is a slave of Christ. This is a servant of Christ. He's the only other person that he has uh, given that commendation. Uh, and one pastor, uh, William Hendrickson, says this about what it means to be a servant of Christ. He says, a servant of Christ Jesus is one who has been bought with a price and is therefore owned by his master, on whom he is completely dependent to whom he owes undivided allegiance, and to whom he ministers with gladness of heart, in newness of spirit, and in the the enjoyment of perfect freedom, receiving from him a glorious reward. That is the commendation that that Paul gives of Epaphras, not one that is lightly bestowed upon anybody. So we see that he's he's a church planter, uh, a Colossian. We see that he is a a servant of Christ. And then this, this next one, he is a wrestler in prayer. Uh, and not in the sense of an, a natural libre type of wrestler, but it, like in the, the type of Olympic athlete type of wrestling. That, that is what Paul is saying here. Uh, he says that Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. And that, that idea of, of, of struggling is where we get our English word a- agony. Or agonizing. What, what the Epaphras was doing was not just uh, merely offering up some prayers uh, on occasion, but he was struggling uh, in prayer on behalf of uh, the Colossians. And, and this word for struggling, it appears elsewhere in, in Scripture, 1 Corinthians 9.25, where Paul says, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it uh, to receive a perishable wreath, uh, but we an imperishable. That word for athlete is that same one who struggles, one who competes. That's the idea that is on display here. Uh, every athlete is all those who are struggling. Now, the idea is of, of fighting, and it's used that way in John 18, verse 36, where Jesus answered, he says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. There's our word. That I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. See, Paul uses uh, this word here figuratively to draw a comparison. Uh, and, and saying that in the same way an athlete trains and exerts himself in his competition so that he might win the prize, Epaphras exerts himself in prayer for the Colossians so that he might be heard and his prayers might be Answered. And just a few weeks ago, we saw the same word in Luke chapter 22, as we looked on Good Friday with Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Luke 22:44 said, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat becoming like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. This is the, Paul's, uh, is saying that Epaphras' prayer here is Christ-like, that he is, is struggling in, in his prayers in the same way that Christ did. So uh, as we look at just who Epaphras is, first and foremost, uh, Epaphras is, someone, is held up as someone who is, who is devoted to prayer and who uh, we are also, since we are also commanded to be, be devoted in prayer, to continue steadfastly in prayer, it would be helpful to make some observations about how he prayed, right? Uh, if, if we're to continue steadfastly and we see that he's uh, a faithful prayer warrior, let's make some observations about what he, what he did in his prayers or how he prayed. Uh, number one, we see that he persistently spent time in prayer. Uh, Paul doesn't say that, hey, on occasion, you know, when he finds himself praying, he mentions of you sometimes. And he says, no, he always struggles on your behalf in his prayer. So the idea is not of, of constant or unceasing prayer, but rather of regular and repeated prayer. So it's not that all day long, uh, you know, 24-7, Epaphras is praying for the Colossians, but the idea is that, hey, he is regularly lifting you up in prayer to the Lord. Whenever he, Epaphras was praying, he was praying for the Colossians. That's the idea here. Uh, and so, again, if if we want to look to Epaphras and say, okay, he, he's somewhat of a model of prayer. Jesus is our perfect example, but we have we can learn things from other godly saints. If, if Epaphras is praying persistently, what should we ask of ourselves? How frequently uh, and for how long do I pray? How much time do we spend in prayer uh, to our Lord? One little question we can ask. Secondly, we see that he petitioned God for the spiritual growth of others. Uh, it says that Epaphras prayed that or so that you, speaking of the Colossians, may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. So 
There, what we see here is that Epaphras was continually or persistently praying for three things for the Colossians. Stability, maturity, and surety or assurance. Uh, and let's, let's look at those in turn. Of Number one, of stability. He asks that they would stand. He says, I want you to, to stand, that you may stand mature and fully assured. But this idea of, of standing, meaning that he wanted them to be stable in their faith. Uh, not being driven to and fro by every wind of doctrine by false teachers. Okay, if, if for the, when Christians are standing firm in the faith and a, and a false teacher comes in and, and speaks, what happens? Nothing. The Christians stand right there, f- firmly anchored in the Word of God, uh, and it's the false teacher who will be rebuked and turned away. Uh, and if they are standing firm in the faith, they won't be impacted by this idea of false doctrine. Uh, and James 1, verses uh, 5 through 8, get, paints a, a great picture of this. Of If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The opposite of stability is instability, being driven to and fro uh, by anything that comes along. And and what the Epaphras is is praying for the Colossians is the same thing that the Apostle Paul prayed for them, that they would be stable, that they would grow uh, and and be anchored in the Word. Now, uh, it's funny, right now my my son is about a year old, uh, and he's at that point of not quite walking, and and he's slowly trying to, to get up and be able to stand on his own. But it doesn't take much uh, for him to fall. Literally, like, yeah, if, if we open a door and the, the breeze comes in, he'll, you know, he'll fall down. It's, way, it's amazing the way God created them that they fall just on their bottom. You're like, okay, not, they're not face planting anywhere. Uh, but it's amazing just to watch him. Of, he struggles to stand on his own. He struggles to, to get up and be there if he's not touching anything. Uh, and we're not to be that way. Now, we are to be Christians who are stable, standing in our faith. That is what what God wants of us, and that is what Epaphras has been praying for the Colossians. Uh, and if you if you jump over to Colossians 1, verse 23, you see also uh, that this is the idea that, that Paul presents uh, of what he is calling every Christian to be. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting, from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a, mystery, a minister of. Hey, don't don't shift away from the gospel. Stand in the gospel. Be rooted and stable in what you have been taught from the apostle, from Epaphras. Don't don't wander away from it. Stand in it. Now, that is what Epaphras has been praying for. And then, secondly, he, he prays for maturity. He wants them to stand. Uh, it, mature uh, and fully assured, but that idea of maturity, of, of being fully developed, uh, of th- this word for maturity also it c- conveys the idea of of being perfect. Uh, when when Jesus says in Matthew five forty eight, therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, he uses this same word. Uh, the idea is, is to uh, the, the, of being fully developed or of something uh, reaching its end goal or its ultimate purpose, uh, and. Paul's using it here to speak of complete uh, spiritual development. And that, that, that Epaphras is praying for for the Colossians to come of age, so to speak, to come to uh, maturity. And uh, when you think of mature trees, uh, you think of uh, each kind of tree, there, there's different marks of maturity. Uh, for some of them, it's a certain age. For some of them, it's a certain height. For some, it's, it's bearing fruit or the fruit uh, looks or is a certain and particular size. Sometimes it's a, uh, a certain canopy being filled in. Uh, there's different, uh, I guess, markers of maturity among trees. But a tree can be mature, but do they ever stop growing? No, they, they reach maturity and then they continue to grow. And that's the idea that we need to understand as Christians. We can, we can come to maturity. We can understand everything that God wants us to understand about our salvation, uh, about uh, Him, about His Word, about who we are to be and what we are to do as followers of Christ. Uh, but then we continue to grow. We, we come to maturity and then we begin to bear fruit. Uh, but then we, we continue to follow Christ, uh, denying ourselves, taking up our crosses daily and following him. That, that is the idea here of coming to coming to maturity. That is what Epaphras is praying for. And again, as we read in Colossians one twenty eight, what was Paul's personal ministry goal? His mission statement was to see everybody come to maturity. 
And again, that's not that's not something that's impossible to attain. It is possible. Otherwise, Paul has an impossible goal. But hey, I want to present everybody mature in Christ uh, so that they may bear fruit and glorify the Lord. Now, that is what Epaphras has been praying for the Colossians. And then uh, number th- or number three of what he's been praying for is, is surety or, or assurance. He says, may you stand mature and fully assured uh, in all the will of God. Uh, he wants them to have complete assurance. He wants them to be absolutely certain uh, of what has been passed to them. Uh, and if you turn over with me to, to Romans chapter 4, there's a couple of books to the left. The, the Apostle Paul uses this word of the idea of, of being uh, filled with assurance. In, in Romans chapter 4, verse 21, he, he, he's going to use this word in describing Abraham. Uh, and, and what Abraham's faith looked like. If Abraham had an absolute, uh, full assurance of what God had promised to him. And he's referring to, uh, to Genesis 15. But look with me in, uh, Romans, uh, 4, beginning in verse 19. It says, he, speaking of Abraham, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. And then verse 21, there we see our word, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. This is this is an example of what it looks like to be fully assured of Abraham's faith of hey I I, I haven't seen anything to to demonstrate that God is going to to carry out his promises right uh, God called Abraham when he was seventy five years old and said hey I'm going to make of you a great nation twenty five years later uh, Abraham still doesn't have any children uh, at least from his his wife Sarah he tried to do his own thing in his own way uh, with Hagar and the, the results are uh, far reaching but. Uh, of Abraham's faith, when he finally trusted and said, okay, Lord, I'm going to trust this to you, that's when he was, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And that's what Paul is pointing back to here, that he was fully convinced that what God said he would do, he would do. Uh, and that's what Epaphras has been praying for the Colossians, that they would be fully assured, fully convinced in the same way that Abraham was fully convinced of God's promises. Uh, but Epaphras has been, has been praying in another area. What does he say? I want you to be, he's praying that they would be fully assured in what? It says, in all the will of God. And that's kind of an ambiguous concept, right? Uh, the will of God. Have you under, ever wondered what God's will is for your life? You're like, absolutely. It's one of those things that everybody always has questions of, am I in God's will? Am I outside of God's will? What does he want for me? And that's Epaphras' prayer. He wants them to, to be sure of what God expects of them, what, what, what God is calling them to do. And, and actually, the will of God is not nearly as complicated as, as we like to make it. Because in God's word, he, he, he gives us this helpful statement of this is the will of God. <laughs> and you're like, okay, that's God's will for me. So uh, a couple of those uh, occasions when he says this is God's will, Galatians 1, 4, says, who, who gave himself for our sins, to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of God, our, our God and Father. So what's, what's one portion of God's will? That we would be delivered through Christ from this evil age. Like, all right, that sounds good so far. Another part of God's will for us is that we would be sanctified. First Thessalonians 4.3 For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So, okay, so God uh, saved me through Christ to deliver me from this present evil age, and now he wants me to... Follow Christ, to live a holy life. He wants me to be sanctified. A little bit later in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, verse 18, he says, Giving thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God uh, in Christ Jesus for you. So what's another thing that we're supposed to be doing at all times? What's God's will for us? That we would give thanks in how many circumstances? All. That's, that's an exact number. In every circumstance, we are to be giving thanks to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, That is His will for us. So, saved, sanctified, giving thanks. And then Ephesians 6.6 says, Not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Okay, So, in those things of being saved, sanctified, and now uh, giving thanks in all circumstances, we are to do that with all of our hearts, with our entire being. That is what God is calling us to in a, in a nutshell. There's more to it than that. But if, if you understand those things, you'll generally understand what God is calling you to do and be as a Christian. 
And Epaphras regularly prayed for the Colossians to understand what God was calling them to do and be. That that was his prayer. And if we think about this, this is what was most important, the most significant thing for Epaphras to be praying for. Because what is it that brings about standing in faith? Well, an understanding of what God is calling you to, an understanding of God's promises. Uh, and what is it that brings us to maturity? An understanding of what God expects of us, right? We don't have to be able to answer every single thing in the Bible, but we can still be mature believers if we understand the will of God for us. Again, saved, sanctified, giving thanks, and now serving Him with all of our hearts. That's, that's the basics in a nutshell, and that's what Epaphras has been praying for the Colossians. And again, as we, as we look at this, if we're saying that Epaphras was, was dedicated to interceding for others, for praying for the spiritual growth of others, we get to hold ourselves up to that. We have to ask, how am I doing in lifting others up? Am I praying for others? Am I praying for myself? And am I praying specifically for spiritual growth in myself, in others? Uh, it's amazing that the Apostle Paul uh, doesn't really pray for anybody to be healed. He doesn't pray for anybody's uh, cousin or nephew or anything else. He doesn't even pray for traveling mercies. And he had some rough travels. Uh, but he always prayed for the spiritual growth of the saints. That was his greatest concern. Uh, and that they would be understanding of God's will. And what we see of Epaphras' prayer, and again, it mirrors what the Apostle Paul was praying for already in Colossians chapter 1. And he sees a lot of similarities here. So we have to ask, how, who are we praying for most often? And, and do we pray in this same way? Are we praying for the, the stability, maturity, and assurance of those uh, around us that they might grow in the knowledge of God's will? That, that is how we ought to be praying for uh, those we love, those who are in the church. Uh, that is what we need to make note of here as we look at uh, what Epaphras, how Epaphras prayed. Uh, a third observation about how he prayed that he painfully exerted himself in prayer. If you look at chapter, or not chapter 13, verse 13 in Colossians 4, Paul vouches for Epaphras to say, I I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Uh, So Paul is uh, is explaining, he, he has worked hard. And again, how do you work hard for somebody when you're not there? Epaphras is in Rome. He didn't come back to the Colossians. He's still there with Paul. And so how is he still working on behalf of people that he's not with? He's praying. He's working diligently. And that uh, the NASB uh, translate uh, that, that, that worked hard for you as he has a deep concern for you. Uh, the idea is work that involves much exertion or trouble. Uh, hard, it's hard labor. It's toil. And, and in fact, this, this Greek word only appears three other times in the New Testament. And all three times, it's translated or it has the idea of pain. Listen to these verses in, in Revelation. The only other times this word appears is in Revelation 16, verses 10 and 11. And then Revelation 21, 4. I'll read them both to you. So Revelation 16. Says the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish, there's our word, and cursed the God of heaven for their pain. Again, that word appears again, uh, and source. But they did not repent of their deeds. And then Revelation 21 4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So think about that. Paul, Paul uses that word to describe that the pain that Epaphras was experiencing, of what, what he was enduring in his prayer life on behalf of the Colossians. Now, which is amazing to think about. How do, you, how do you get to that point of being in pain as you pray for others? Well, what, what brings that about? And again, if, if we're just comparing ourselves in the way the Epaphras prayed versus the way that we pray, do we pray to the point of being pained for others? For the, for their spiritual condition? Do we have such great concern for them that we are pained in our soul as we see their condition and we, we long so much for their growth and for their maturity and stability that we are in pain in our own souls? Uh, and see, and that's the, the fervency that we pray with for them. Are we, are we doing that? Uh, 
or are we falling short? And then I just want to want to pause for for a second of what is it that causes such pain? Right? If if Epaphras is in that pain, what what's causing that? And I just want to point back to again of what is it? Uh, this is a church planter who sees his churches being led astray by false teachers. That uh, they are wandering from the truth, and and that is what is what is prompting such great uh, concern for him. Uh, which leads us to our, to our fourth observation about the way that Epaphras prayed, that, that he was prompted by spiritual concern. Uh, this idea that he was, he was working for them, he was agonizing painfully in prayer on their behalf because he cared for them. He had spiritual concern for them. Uh, the great missionary Hudson Taylor says, you may work without praying, but you cannot pray without working. Uh, that, that prayer in and of itself is work. It's taxing. It's, it's laborious. Uh, and, and that is what Epaphras is doing. He is working on their behalf, laboring in prayer for them. Uh, and he's not present with any of the churches, but he's working for their spiritual well-being. Uh, and he's seeing uh, them being led astray. Uh, and it's of great concern to him. And that's why, if you jump over to Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, what I, what I think is maybe the, the most powerful warning in the book of Colossians. Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. See, Paul's warning them, don't be taken captive by any idea. Don't be enslaved and taken prisoner by anything that that is not according to Christ. If it's according to human tradition... Don't buy into it. If it's according to the traditions uh, and the elemental spirits of the world, hey, don't buy into it. Don't adhere to anything that is not according to Christ. So it would have been extremely painful for Epaphras to see these churches wandering away from the gospel and begin to embrace false teaching. And it's painful when that happens because ideas have consequences. Right? We, we have to understand that ideas always have Consequences, and, and oftentimes we don't realize all of the consequences of a specific idea or embracing a particular idea. But the consequences sometimes need to take uh, many, many years over the course of history to demonstrate what the, what the fruit of those consequences are. Uh, and that's why Epaphras is so concerned. One, one little example of this. So in 1858, this guy named Charles Darwin published a, a famous book, The Origin of Species. And the book itself wasn't wasn't a bestseller. Uh, everybody has heard of it, but nobody's really read it. Uh, and that's kind of how it was, even in its own time. Uh, that, uh, and the main idea of this book was not was that man was not created by God, but that man was an evolved animal who had descended from uh, monkeys and ultimately through single-celled bacteria. Uh, that, that's the main point of this book. Uh, and even though the book wasn't a bestseller, the main idea began to appear, and all of these magazines and newspapers that began to spread like like wildfire. And this theory of evolution or transmutation, uh, as Darwin himself called it, uh, was an idea that was going to have far-reaching consequences. And Darwin understood that. He was talking about on the eve of his publication, he was, he was nervous. He understood that life was going to change for him. And he was going to create a rift in society and saying that, hey, God does not come from, I'm sorry, man does not come from God, but from uh, animal. Uh, this was going to be a, a, a very important book because it was going to fundamentally shift society. And, and after the book was published, members of high society, the, the cultural and academic elites of that time, uh, began to, to judge others based upon whether or not they embraced what Darwin taught. So you were accepted or rejected based upon believing uh, Darwinism. Uh, and the, the theory of evolution became this, this measuring stick of cultural acceptance. Does that, does that sound familiar uh, at all? Uh, there's nothing new under the sun. So this was in 1858 when Darwin's book was published. Just a few years later, 1874, German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche made a famous pronouncement. He says, God is dead. And what is he building upon? He's building upon Darwin's ideas. And he had the highest praise for Darwin, but, but listen to what Nietzsche thought about the implications of Darwin's theory and philosophy, because he, that's what philosophers do, they think. So he said, hey, what are the implications of this? What's going to come about as a result of this idea that man comes 
from an animal. And man is an animal rather than created in the image of God. This is what Nietzsche said. He said that the doctrine that there is no cardinal distinction between man and animal will have a demoralizing effect upon human society. Not demoralizing in the sense of we lose our morale, but that our morals go out the window. That is what he predicted, this, this philosopher who didn't believe in God himself. He says Darwin's ideas are going to remove all social morals. He said Darwin's theory would lead to, uh, quote, barbaric nationalistic brotherhoods and result within one generation in wars such as never have been fought before. So here you have this, this philosopher. What's he predicting? Hey, this, this worldview, this idea is going to lead to intense nationalism and the most intense wars that humanity has ever seen. And he predicts it within one generation. One generation is about, what, 30 years? Uh, and so he predicted that in 1874. Well, actually, it was, it was a little bit off. So 40 years later, World War I begins, 1914. And 25 years after that, 1939, World War II begins. And, and what was Hitler's Germany? What was the, the resounding belief of that nation at that time, of the Third Reich? That they were the superior race who needed to dominate all other uh, nations and races. That sound familiar? What is that based upon? What is it built upon? A singular idea. What and what are the results in our own culture? What fundamental? What's the fundamental belief of our secular society today? That man is an evolved animal, and if we are an evolved animal, we don't come from God. There is no lawgiver. And there is no accountability to a creator if we, if we have descended from single-celled organisms. So it, it's even more severe today of there, there's no morality. There, there's no absolute morality that people accept and look to for what is right and what is wrong. Ideas always have consequences. And Epaphras and Paul know that. So when Epaphras comes and says, hey, we're having problems in the church and the church is beginning to wander, Paul says, all right, I'll write them right now. I'm going to send these two guys. They'll carry a letter. They'll put these things in order. We'll, we'll teach them. We'll, we'll correct them and get back on track because ideas always have consequences. He's not going to, uh, Epaphras is not going to sit idly by by these, all these churches that he planted, that he's been praying, agonizing over, that they wander into false doctrine. He's not going to, to have that, not without a battle. So Epaphras prayed with great spiritual concern for others, and and do we share in that same spiritual concern? Do we see others who are enslaved by false ideas, whether it would be Darwinism or, or any other of, of so many lies that our world proclaims today? When we see those people enslaved by those ideas, what do we do? Do we immediately turn to the Lord in prayer? Do we ask Him for wisdom? Do we ask for God to intercede uh, in their in their lives? Do we ask for wisdom from uh, God to we might understand how to explain the truth from God's Word and intervene and, and share the truth? And and that's that's our call to to ministry. Every single one of us to speak the truth in love. We don't we can't transform anybody's hearts, but we do need to speak truth. Prayer was one of Epaphras' strengths. It was something that he was devoted to. And as we look at the way that he prayed and what he prayed for, we we should be humbled. I know I am. We should be humbled in looking at this prayer warrior. And as we see our own inconsistencies in prayer, we should then ask, okay, how do I grow? How do I grow in prayer? How do I uh, change and, and improve in my own prayer? Again, not to save myself, because does prayer save us? No, but it, it makes us more and more like our Savior. So let's look at that. How, how can we grow? Number one, uh, if you turn over to Hebrews 11.6. Number one, I said we need to be convinced that God exists and that he answers prayer. You're like, wow, Thomas, that, that's kind of basic, uh, right? I, if I'm going to pray, I need to believe God exists. Well, yes, it is basic, and we need basic. Now, if you don't believe in God, uh, there's no motivation to pray. Look with, look with me, Hebrews 11.6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. See, if we don't believe God exists, we don't need to go to him in prayer. And if we don't believe that uh, he'll hear us and answer us, 
There's no need to go to him in prayer. So first and foremost, we need to, to understand the basics about prayer. God exists, he hears us, and he will answer according to his will. Secondly, we need to be convinced of the importance of prayer. Luke chapter 18 uh, tells us of Jesus explaining a parable. And he, verse 1 says, And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So again, there's an exact number there. And what is it? Always. We need to understand how important prayer is for our own spiritual lives. The apostles understood it in the early church. Acts 6.4 says, But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And then turn over to Ephesians uh, 6.18. It's an amazing passage of... He's going he's gonna, to, again, use exact numbers over and over again. And when he, when you have this many exact numbers in one place, I think he's emphasizing something. Ephesians 6.18, after uh, describing the, the, the full armor of God and telling the Ephesians, hey, you need to put this on, that the capstone to that is praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. How many times does all appear in that one verse? You got four times. Uh, I think he's trying to, to emphasize the importance of prayer. And then we have, again, as we've already seen in Colossians, that we are to continue steadfastly or be devoted to prayer. This is, this is the importance. If, if we are not praying, we are not living as Christians as we should. We're not maintaining our relationship with the Lord and echoing back to Him uh, all of our concerns, uh, that we, what we need to be living out in our life. So number one, or number one, we need to believe that God exists and that He answers prayer. Number two, we need to understand the importance of prayer. Uh, and I would, uh, I would encourage you to do something. Just as you read the Bible, make note of prayers in Scripture. I did that with one of my Bibles. Every time I came across it, I would highlight it in yellow. And it's suddenly, my Bible's full of yellow. <laughs> there are prayers everywhere in Scripture, you, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. You just see the people of God crying out to Him. And you see how the Apostle Paul speaks often about how he's praying for a specific uh, church, or he just mingles prayer right in the middle of what he's saying. Uh, you know, He gets to the end of Romans 11, he's like, I just have to pause and praise the Lord for who He is and what He's done in salvation. Uh, that, that is what you'll begin to see as you just make note of prayer in Scripture. So that was a little side note, but then uh, n- number three, if we need to, we need to be convinced that God uses prayer. Oftentimes we we can neglect prayer because you're like maybe we th- we say, oh God's already going to do something. If God wanted it done, He would do it. Well, we need to understand that sometimes our prayers are the instrument God wants to use to accomplish His purposes. Okay, we see this in in First Samuel one with this woman named Hannah. God wants to provide. Uh, a leader for his people, and he's going to do that through Samuel, but Samuel doesn't exist yet uh, because Hannah's been barren. So it's amazing also of God uses suffering, and then what's our typical response to suffering? It's a good response, prayer. He uses suffering, then we respond in prayer, and then God uses those prayers to accomplish his purposes. We see that first Samuel 1. We see that in numerous places uh, in the Old Testament when his people are in dire straits. We're going to get ready to uh, to read through Judges in our growth groups uh, this month. Okay, just look, make note of when does God save them. They, they turn in sin to idols, uh, and then God brings judgment upon them through another nation coming in and conquering them. And then when they're conquered, that's when they cry out to God. And then that, after that, that's when God saves. So God uses our prayers to accomplish his purposes. Secondly, he, he uses our prayers to sanctify us. Over and over again in the New Testament, you'll see that God uses prayer in our lives to sanctify us, to make us more and more like Christ. Again, no, if you read through the Gospel of Luke, Luke makes a huge emphasis on the prayer life of Jesus. Just go through there and see how often Jesus is found praying. First uh, Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24 uh, encapsulates this, this concept of, of sanctification through prayer. Uh, and Paul prays for the Thessalonians. He says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So prayer also reminds us of our dependency upon him. Oftentimes our prayerlessness uh, is a, isn't a demonstration of our independence from God. 
which is typical, right? What's our number one cultural value in America? Independence. You, you can do this. Uh, just pull yourself up uh, by your own bootstraps. Uh, but God wants us to depend upon him. He doesn't want us to be independent. He wants us dependent. And the very act of going to him in prayer acknowledges what? That you're kind of at the end of yourself, that you need his help. You're turning to him to strengthen you and that you are depending upon him. Fourthly, he uses prayer to comfort us. If you turn over to, to 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter says this, beginning of verse 6. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So we see a couple of reasons to pray in that instance. of uh, God will, will comfort us. He cares for us. But what is it we need to do? Humble ourselves. Uh, and then also just for protection, uh, being watchful uh, against Satan, who, who's wandering about, seeking whom he may devour. Okay. In Scripture, we also see that God uses prayer to heal us. James 5. Uh, it's talking about spiritual healing there. And the gift of healing, I don't think any individual has at this point in time. But God is still uses prayer to heal people. God still does heal. And I've heard of miraculous healings of people coming together and praying for somebody. Uh, but no one individual has the gift of healing. And if, if they did, where should they be? It should be not in a, in a, in a church, but at a hospital. Okay? If, if, you, if you have the gift of healing, you need to be where the sick people are. Uh, not just trying to, uh, to perform miracles among certain individuals and, and trying to get money. But that's a, another uh, topic for another day. Pr- prayer is also intended to keep us from sin. As Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray, what does he say? Lead us not into temptation. Uh, we need to pray that we would be able to rightly respond to temptation in the moment. Okay. J.C. Ryle says, Bibles read without prayer, sermons heard without prayer, marriages contracted without prayer, journeys undertaken without prayer, residences chosen without prayer, friendships formed without prayer, the daily act of prayer itself hurried over or gone through without heart. These are the kind of downward steps by which many a Christian descends into a condition of spiritual palsy or reaches the point where God allows them to have a tremendous fall. You know, if prayer is for our own benefit, it helps us battle against temptation and sin. And we need help with that. Number four, we need to, to be pierced by what our lack of prayer reveals. We need to let that sink in and just ask that question of why am I not praying? What's really going on? Uh, what's really demonstrated by my lack of prayer? Charles Spurgeon says, I know of no better thermometer to your spiritual temperature than this, the measure of the intensity of your prayer. So, so we need to, to develop and understand all of those things, even prior to fleshing out, okay, how do I actually sit down and pray now? First and foremost, do you believe that God exists and that He answers prayer? Do you believe that God will use your prayers to accomplish His purposes? Uh, in your life, to, to sanctify you, to protect you, to, to bring you into dependence upon Him, to, to, to heal and comfort you? Do you believe that God uses prayer in your life in those ways? We need to be pierced by our lack of prayerlessness. And then, number five there, of that we need to begin to prioritize prayer time. Look, I know that you are busy. Everybody's busy. I would be shocked if anybody raised their hand. Is anybody not busy here? Raise your hand. Uh, there's nobody like, i got a ton of extra time. I don't know what to do with it. Should I pray? Uh, no, we're all like, how do, I, how do I get prayer into my life? It's amazing. Martin Luther, he says, work, work, from early until late. In fact, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. See, see this, this idea of busyness, it's not just a 21st century thing. People throughout history have always been busy. There's always stuff to do. It's always demands upon our time. But we are called to devote ourselves to prayer. What does devotion look like? To continue steadfastly in something. 
If prayer is truly going to happen, we have to make it not a not a second, third, or fourth priority, but we have to make it a huge priority. See, we we can't fit prayer into our schedule. We have to to build and structure our schedule around our time with the Lord, around our time in the Word, around our time in prayer. Because if we if we don't do that, how is that typically worked out for you? Oh, I just need to find time for that. Do you do you really find time for it? No, if if you if it's that important, what do you do? You make time, and that is what we have to do when it comes to praying, to to, to communicating with God about all of our concerns. Again, uh, a true wish sent Godward. That is what prayer is, and that's what we are called to do. Uh, and this morning, we, we've looked at Epaphras. We, we've looked at this this faithful and true prayer warrior. We've looked at how he was prompted to pray for his people. He he prayed for them persistently and painfully, petitioning God to work in their hearts and lives so that they might obtain stability, maturity, and assurance in their faith and in the will of God. That's what we see in him, and how we need to begin to endeavor uh, towards that. When I was when I was in college, uh, new believer, young believer, I got saved when I was twenty. Uh, and then I go out to New Mexico, six months uh, a believer, uh, and I begin to to be, try and live this Christian life uh, away from everybody I had known. Uh, and the Lord brought me to a church there, and the pastor gave me or recommended a book, uh, E.M. Bounds on Prayer. Uh, and that that book so greatly impacted me because it it significantly held up men who have prayed for years and years for people. It, Told me a set of examples of, of George Mueller, who was a pastor uh, in I think the 1700s, of how he's, he prayed for years for the people to be saved, uh, and and one by one, this list of like five people he had came to know Christ, one, one after the other, and one of them, uh, even after uh, George Mueller himself had passed away, this person came to faith. But just the those years of of faithful prayer that God used those uh, to accomplish His will and His purposes. Uh, well, uh, just th- that book was so challenging to me because it, it it humbled me so greatly of saying I need to be about prayer. I need to be a man of prayer. I need to, to I want to see God work in and through me. Uh, and we we need to see that God, the instrument that God most often uses to transform hearts, to transform lives, is His Word and prayer. What did the apostles say that they needed to devote themselves to? Prayer and the Word. They mentioned prayer first. So this this quote from E.M. Bounds, and I'm going to going to read to you. It, it, it pierces my heart, and I I pray that it pierces yours, and that we might respond to it and to what Scripture has laid out for us today in the life of Epaphras. E.M. Bounds says, "What the church needs today is not more machinery or better uh, or new organizations or more and novel methods." They don't need any of those things, but what they, what the church needs most says, but men and women whom the Holy Ghost can use, people of prayer, people mighty in prayer. May we be a church and a people who are devoted to prayer. May we be a church and a people whom God uses in our treasure valley in the same way that he uses Epaphras in the Lycus Valley. May we commit ourselves to prayer, to the word, and may we see what the Lord does with that. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you in prayer, so thankful for the privilege that we have of coming before the throne of grace. Not because of anything that we have done, Not because we have earned this privilege, but because Christ bought this privilege for us. On the cross, he paid the penalty for our sins. And because we are now forgiven and and justified by his blood, we can come, come to you boldly, with confidence, knowing that you will hear us. Lord, what a privilege that is. That we can transcend time and space and come to you in prayer. Or as we come to you this morning, we want to to confess our own prayerlessness, our lack of prayer before you. Lord, we confess our independence, 
our desire to act and live in our own strength and in our own wisdom rather than depending completely upon you. Lord, teach us that we, that we do not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth and that we need to be nourished in our relationship with you through prayer as well. If your son Jesus needed to regularly set aside time to go and commune with you in prayer, Lord, how much more do we? I pray that you would impress that upon our hearts, that you would forgive us for our prayerlessness and that you would grant us your grace to repent, to turn from prayerlessness to prayerfulness, to come before you regularly, making it a priority to spend time in prayers, for ourselves, that we would flee from temptation, that you would keep us from temptation, that you would keep us from the evil one, that you would work in our lives and sanctify us, making us more and more like your Son each and every day. Lord, we pray that you would also impress upon our hearts a a desire and a burden to pray for others, or that they would grow spiritually. Lord, we want to see everybody in this church built up, stable, mature, and fully assured in all of your will. And we long to see our friends, neighbors, co-workers, family members, we long to see them come to know Christ as we know him. Lord, we long to see them saved. I pray that you would open doors for us, that you would give us the words and the wisdom to speak the gospel clearly and powerfully, that we would just be instruments in your hands in proclaiming the gospel and in casting out the seed of the gospel and that we would just leave the results up to you. But Lord, may we be faithful. May we be faithful prayer warriors, even as Epaphras was. May we be uh, a church and a people who are identified and known for our prayer, for those in our church, for those in the community. Lord, may we have that reputation. And ultimately, Lord, may we be faithful ambassadors representing Christ, our King, who is not here with us. But Lord, may we represent Him faithfully and accurately before a watching world who desperately needs Him. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful for all You have done for us. And it is in Your name that we pray all of these things. Amen.